Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is on page 528 of those Pew Bibles. As you're turning there, as a way of introduction, um, Psalms 1 and 2 are kind of like a doorway to the book of Psalms, like an overture to the symphony of the songbook of God's people. And in these two psalms, we get a picture of many of the themes that are through the entire book. So Psalm 1 shows us the connection between wisdom, righteousness, God's word, and God's rule. And Psalm 2 shows how those things come together in a single person, God's anointed king. So the question before us is simple. What does it mean for the king of heaven to be on the throne? What does that mean for us today? So let's read from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings... Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. This is God's word given to, our, to us for our good. Father, we thank you that you are on the throne. And even as we look to understand more of what that means for us, we trust, Lord, that it is good news, that you are no tyrant, but that you rule us with kindness, goodness, and justice. And so we look to you expecting to hear from you. We pray, Lord, that whatever I say, if it doesn't come from you, would be forgotten. And that whatever I do say that comes from you would be remembered and be planted in our hearts. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1938, seven years after his conversion to Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote the first of what would become a trilogy that was known as his Space Trilogy. So this is 1938. This is like 40 years before Star Wars, just to put that in perspective. And he already is coming up with a story about planetary travel and 
alien worlds and all this. And in this story, the main character, whose name is Elwyn Ransom, is, of course, a Cambridge um, linguist, a professor, much like Lewis. And this professor travels in the first book to the planet Mars, where he encounters, and I'm sorry if this is a spoiler, but the book was published almost 85 years ago, so you've had time. He travels to Mars and he discovers a whole new world. And he discovers that actually what is true on this world is more true on his world than he realizes. Because there is a single spiritual ruler over the land of Mars, and they call that ruler an Oyarsa. And in this mythology, every planet has one, except for one. Can you guess which planet doesn't have one? Earth. And the question is, why is that? Well, Earth's Oyarsa, which we would call Satan, was not content to rule just one planet, but he sought to rule all of the planets. And because of that, he was banished. And so Ransom, the main character, has been going his entire life not knowing any of this, not realizing that the only existence he has ever known is a world without a king. And he comes to talk to these really wise aliens at some point. And during that conversation with these, uh, there's a teacher and some students, this is the dialogue that we get in that, in that passage. Um, so Ransom is being asked all these questions because these other aliens don't know anything about Earth. And so they're asking him all sorts of stuff about human history, about life, and all this. And it says this, the other aliens were astonished at what he had to tell them of human history, of war, slavery, prostitution. Because as a parenthesis, none of that stuff exists on the other planets. So one of the pupils says, it's because they have no Oyarsa. They have no ruler. That's why they're dealing with all this chaos. The teacher says uh, in response, no, it's because every one of them wants to be a little Oyarsa himself. The picture Lewis paints here is resonant with what we see in Psalm 2. Just like the humans of Lewis's mythology try to be little Oyarsas apart from any real ruler, so Psalm 2 shows us the kings of the earth are setting themselves up they are the ones who have appointed themselves as rulers. And what happens is a total trail of destruction and chaos. So what we desperately need above all else is for the true and righteous king to take the throne. But, hang on, let's not deceive ourselves. We all too often are not just the passive victims of other people's tyranny. We, too, imitate this posture of wanting to be a little Oyarsa, of wanting to be a ruler, of not wanting to give allegiance to the only true king. So we resist God's rule often, and we view his kingship as a cord 
that binds us to a constricting life. But Psalm 2 gives us a mirror to our hearts. It shows us our tendency to want to shake off God's rule and to set up our own kings in our hearts, which, more often than not, are ourselves. But more than that, Psalm 2 is inviting us first to look in that mirror and to see that, but then to put the mirror down and to notice the real king standing before us. What I want us to hear this morning, more than anything else, is this. Jesus Christ is the king. Jesus Christ is the king. He is the king over all creation. He is the king over every church, every city, every council, every nation, every throne room, parliaments, throne rooms of all kinds. He is the king in charge. Abraham Kuyper was right when he said, there is not a single square inch in all of creation over which Jesus Christ does not cry, mine, that's mine. I'm king over that too. So, this is good news. I know it maybe doesn't sound like that right now. This is good news because we need to know as people who have been rebels, part of the rebellion, we need to know that there is a king on the throne and it's not us. So in order to see this more clearly, I want to look at two things this morning. Just two? I know, usually it's supposed to be three. Two. Um, first, the rebellion and then the refuge. Okay? So let's look at the rebellion. What are some things that we notice? When we look at Psalm 2, what do we see about this rebellion? How would you characterize it? How do you talk about it? Well, look at verse 1. The first thing we see is that the nations are raging. This is not a calm rebellion that is sort of patiently considering what to do in this situation. They are seething. It's like a tempest over a rough ocean. This is chaos, utter chaos. There's no peace. The kings of the earth are shaking with anger. What else are they doing? If we look at the next sentence, these rebels are plotting. Now, an important thing to note here is that that word plotting, this is right after Psalm 1. And in Psalm 1, the same word was used, except it means meditating. Because that word pictures sort of a mumbling to oneself. It's when you're trying to keep something on your mind and you sort of are muttering it to yourself, right? That's the basic act. And it can be positive, like you're chewing on God's word. You're, you know, why do the nations rage? Why do the people's plot in vain? You're doing that. It can also be, I want to get back at this person. I can't wait to throw off the chains of whatever. So this is the plotting that's going on, and it's creating rage. So while the blessed or righteous person of Psalm 1 is meditating on God's word, the nations, they're meditating. They're meditating. But their mumblings and murmurings against the Lord have left them quivering with rage against the king of the universe. And the psalmist is clear. What is that good for? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. 
They are plotting in vain. They're spending all this energy and excitement on what is ultimately empty. Vanity. Nothingness. So why? Why is that in vain? Well, because what they're planning is impossible. If you look at verses 2 and 3, we'll see what that is. So verses 2 and 3 say, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from among us. The rebellion is against the Lord, the God who made all things, and against the king that he has chosen. So, we also need to notice as well that this rebellion, uh, these rulers aren't viewing God's reign as something that is life-giving. They see it, and how do they picture it? They say they want to cast off their cords from among us. They want to break the bonds. That's prison language. That's trapped. You're not free in that situation. According to these kings, the thought of having anyone over them is like being chained up, put in a straitjacket, and restricted. They've, um, they've set themselves up as kings. So how dare anyone challenge them? The natural desire for them is to break free. Now, just pause for a minute. Does that sound familiar to us? I don't mean to them, whoever them is. I mean to us. I'm not going to say anything else about that. I'll let that sit with you. But, like I said, this plan that these kings have is ultimately impossible. In fact, it's so impossible that it's laughable. God himself laughs at this plan. It is so ridiculous to think that these puny kings could overthrow the Lord of the universe. There's a, there's a moment in the story of Babel, you know, the Tower of Babel. And this, this is it's meant to be like laugh out loud funny. I don't know if you realize this. The Bible can be funny. Um, but these, these people are gathering together to build a tower to the heavens. They're, they're saying, we're going to reach to the skies. We're going to reach to where the gods are. It's going to be great. And the next verse says that the Lord essentially has to stoop down. Sort of like, what is that tiny thing down there? That's the best of humanity right there. And it's just this tiny little thing. That's the ridiculousness of trying to start a rebellion against the God who made everything. This is totally ridiculous. And part of it is also because the Lord himself has already set a king. So it's a, it's a bit like, like a high school prankster or a group of them who are planning their next thing and then they suddenly feel the shadow of somebody behind them and realize that it's the principal. And in that moment, they're terrified. And rightly so. They've realized that they have been working against the one who's really in charge. So the real king, the real king has been made known. And so it is utter foolishness to remain in rebellion. 
Rebellion only does two things. It makes it clear that the people rebelling are foolish, and it shows us that the real king is on the throne. So Jesus Christ is the king, and therefore we must repent of our rebellion. We must repent of our rebellion. Now, um, the language about kings and rebellion is not kind of close to our normal experience, right? Um, I am not a subject of the new king. It was fun to watch the coronation, but it meant nothing to me. And we haven't had a king in a long time. And the last time we had, we didn't like. We sent him a very personal letter of rejection. So for us, this, this language of kings and, and notions of rebellion is far from our ordinary experience of life. So let me sort of bring it a little bit closer to us, okay? A story that might help us consider this. So um, when I was little, I did not like preschool. In fact, I so strongly disliked preschool that I, three or four years old, decided to run away. Now, running away at that age looks a lot like just walking a bit bit faster. And I would always feel such righteous indignation in the moment that I I was not going to go to preschool. I did not like anything about it. And I would be very firm in my conviction that I was doing what I should be doing when I was walking the other direction. And then I would feel the shadow of the teacher behind me. And depending on my state of rebellion, either I would be gently led back to the door or he or she would have to pick me up and carry me, kicking and screaming. This is a good um, I think this is a good story to draw on because it shows us the condition of our hearts. So we are not um, maybe taking up arms to rebel against the Lord because we see that's, that would be foolish. But what we do is we still set ourselves up as little kings and queens of our own kingdoms and we try to do our own thing. We try to be capable leaders apart from the Lord. And like a tiny child throwing a fit before a patient and kind parent, we continue steadfast in our rebellion, even when it's completely fruitless. We are the kings and queens of our tiny paper kingdoms. But, like I said, this is what rebellion always does. It shows the folly of the rebels, and it shows who the real king is. So it can be easy for us to imagine that this psalm is directed towards other people. And to some degree, it is. So when the New Testament quotes parts of this psalm, so in the book of Acts, the early parts of the psalm are quoted to talk about earthly rulers who are persecuting early followers of Jesus. And so on one level, those of us who uh, feel pressed down by rulers, whether spiritual rulers or political rulers of any kind, need to know that this is not primarily directed at those of us who are feeling crushed. 
It's directed to those of us who consider ourselves kings in our own right. Oftentimes, I think we occupy both positions. So we have to see that this is an invitation, first, to stop the rebellion, to recognize where we resist the Lord's rule, to put down whatever weapons we've contrived, and to submit ourselves to God, trusting that he is good. But it also means that if we feel tossed by rebellious rulers who are over us, whatever that can look like, whether that's a boss or a coworker or just somebody who's in authority over you in some way, we can also know that they aren't actually the king. The real king is on the throne. So I want us to um, take stock of where we have really rebelled against the Lord. And that could be really small. It doesn't have to be this grand gesture of rebellion. It could be as simple as knowing what you should do and finding a way not to do it. Knowing this is the path that the Lord is calling me to take, and I would like to not take it, so I will not do it. And this is just a a call to put that down, to stop. So Jesus Christ is king. Therefore, we must repent of our rebellion. But what what is left for us who are rebels against the high king of heaven? Are we just supposed to be stuck in an endless cycle of rebellion and repentance? Rebellion and repentance. Or is there another word for us? Psalm 2 indeed does have another word for us. So let's continue. We've looked at the rebellion in these first, the first half of the psalm, and now in the second half of the psalm, we're going to look at the refuge. So the last section of the psalm ended with verse 6, where the Lord declares that he has set up his king on the mountain of Jerusalem. Who is this king? Well, we've heard first from the kings of the earth in verse 3. We hear them say what they're going to do. In verse 6, we hear what God has done. And now in verse 7 comes, and we get to actually hear from the king himself. But he doesn't talk about himself. He, already said, he only says what God has spoken to him. And so we also in this might notice an echo of Jesus, who says that he doesn't speak from himself, but only what the Father gives him. So look at verse 7. This is the voice of the anointed son, who we as followers of Jesus recognize to be Jesus. He says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, this, is, this one verse has prompted more books than could fit in this room, and there is a lot to unpack here, but I will just have mercy on you because you're patient and I'll just say three things here. So first, it was not uncommon in the ancient world for kings to be called a son of a god. That was something that all sorts of people in from Egypt to Rome would do. 
and it was um, considered kind of natural that they would, because they're, they're the ones who have been set up in power, so obviously they must be favored by the gods. But what we have in verse 7 of Psalm 2 is not just that, because it's actually quoting from an earlier part of the Bible, from 2 Samuel 7. And if you know the story of First and Second Samuel, you know that it's primarily the story of the kingship of Israel. And at 2 Samuel 7 is a key moment where God promises to David that he will be on the throne, that, he, that God will be like a father to him, and David will be like a son to God, and that David will have a son on the throne forever. And that kingdom is going to extend throughout the whole world. It won't just be Israel. It will be the entire world. Now, if we stop there, that's all well and good. But David never ruled the whole world. His sons never ruled the whole world. So this promise has to be bigger. And David, as we hear in the sermons uh, in Acts, David himself died. He wasn't on the throne forever. So this is pointing beyond itself to one who fulfills it completely, to overflowing. So it, we see what that looks like in Hebrews 1. When Hebrews 1 quotes from Psalm 2-7, it says this is actually talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son of God the Father. This is where we get language in the earliest Christian creeds telling us that Jesus is begotten from the Father before all ages, from all eternity. He is the Son of the Father. So this is taking us into the heart of the mystery of the Trinity, which I would love to talk about more, but that would take us way farther away from Psalm 2, so I will not do that. Um, it'll be for another time. But the final four verses that we see in Psalm 2 from 8 to 12, are sort of an outworking of this declaration of kingship. So in verse 8, we see why it matters that this king is on the throne. And it's because he's fulfilling the promise to Abraham to be a blessing to all the nations. So all of the earth is the inheritance of that king. And through that kingship, he will bless all of the nations. He won't just rule over them, he'll bless them. Verse 9 is uh, a hard word for us to hear, maybe, because it sounds like a harsh way of ruling. But this is a warning to all the rulers of the earth who remain resistant to God's king. Be warned. You can't be a rebel forever. And verse 10 is where it gets really direct. It says, be wise, be warned. He is the king. You must serve him. And he will not allow you to continue in rebellion. Verses 11 to 12 at the end are the final appeal. Serve the Lord. Stop the rebellion. Kiss the son. Be, show yourself to pay homage to him. You are giving allegiance to Jesus. 
So kiss the son, lest he be angry, and take refuge in the anointed king. So first we saw Jesus Christ is king, and therefore we must repent of our rebellion. But here, Jesus Christ is king, and therefore we have to rest in his refuge. We actually get to rest in his refuge. Now, for some of us, these verses, verse 9 and 10, maybe even a little bit of verse 12 in particular, strike us as odd or difficult because we read of a king who is wrathful and we conjure up images of somebody who is ready to fly off the handle at a moment's notice, who is looking for an excuse to crush someone in rebellion. But that's not the image. We're used to either all wrath or all refuge. And Jesus Christ is not all wrath. And for those who remain in rebellion, he is not all refuge. He's both. And we don't know what to do with that. We think either that must mean he's lying and he's corrupt, or we just don't have a category for it. But this is the truth, that the Lord Jesus is not all wrath or all refuge. He's both at the full height of their power. Notice that verse 12 says his wrath is quickly kindled. It does not say his wrath is a raging fire already. And notice as well the tone of these verses, that the kings are not told get ready for your destruction, but rather, be warned. You can turn. There's still an opportunity to stop the rebellion. So, this is not arbitrary anger. This is the patient and loving response of a king who has given every opportunity for repentance. And for those who face his wrath, That's because they have not given heed to that. They've not listened, and they've continued and continued and continued and continued until finally the Lord says, stop, enough, no more. And for those of us who have been under the boot of that kind of ruler, that's good news. It means that there's an end to that. And it also means it's good news for those of us who find ourselves in the midst of rebellion against God, because there's still time. It's not an already given verdict. And I would just say one more thing about that. Um, We have to remember who it is that we're speaking about. This is Jesus Christ, the son of David, the one who, when, when people came to him, would say things like, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My burden is light. It's the same person who, when his disciples are arguing amongst themselves about who gets to throw down fire on their enemies, says, no, it will not be so among you. Because whoever wants to be greatest must be your servant, and whoever will be first must be last. And this is the same Jesus who quoted the, pro- the prophet Hosea and said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And Jesus' own brother, James, would say in his letter, 
Mercy triumphs over judgment. So if you're getting the picture of Jesus as a king who's ready to smash opposition at the moment's notice, just know he is far more patient than you or I. He's far more ready to give grace. Even in our most compassionate moments, he is more full of love than we could imagine. So this is exactly the kind of person, exactly the kind of king, that we would want for our refuge. He is patient, attentive, kind, wise, full of love and justice. But for some of us, we're, we're not worried about the question of how you can take refuge in someone who has wrath. We're comfortable with that, or we've convinced ourselves that we are. But maybe our question is, how can we take refuge in a person? We understand, like, if we're in here, it's refuge from the rain right now. We're in this building. But how do you take refuge in a person? This is strange language, right? We can admit that. But... Whereas some people might say, oh, it just means that we we are giving our allegiance to a king and he'll protect us. It, It can mean that, but I would say it seems like it goes further. And it seems like what we're getting here is a small taste of what we know so well in the Heidelberg Catechism. What does it mean? Um, Who is our only hope in life and in death? What is our only hope in life and death? That we belong to Jesus, that we are not our own. So this belonging to Jesus gets talked about a lot of different ways. One of the ways that the Apostle Paul talks about it is being in Christ, being united to him. So by faith, the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus so that everything that's true of him, all of his righteousness, all of his goodness, all of his grace is given to us so that we are truly righteous in Christ. So we actually... In a great reversal, it's when we give up our thrones, we lay down our crowns, we actually find that the one we're united to is the king, and we get to reign with him. So we don't become um, nothing when we give up our rebellion. We actually be, we're made to be more. So this is an invitation to all of us who have been rebels and who have resisted God's rule. Take refuge in him. Put down the weapons. Take refuge in him. He is kind and gentle. He will welcome you. And for those of us who have known him a long time, today is an opportunity to once again look to our refuge, to be comforted by the fact that he is the king. He knows what is happening in his kingdom. He's not oblivious to it. And he is the one in whom we find true comfort. So there are two ways to answer the question of who really reigns, of where's your refuge. You can either answer it with the kings of the earth and say, I have no refuge. I have to make my own. And I am my own king. I'm the one who reigns. And what that leaves you with is rage. Nothing but rage. The other answer is to say, I am taking refuge in God's anointed king. I'm taking refuge in him. And in that, you don't get rage. You get rest. 
So this is, this is our chance. Will you choose rest? Don't choose rage. It's empty, vanity. Choose rest. There's only one king. And thanks be to God that he is no tyrant, but the one who called himself gentle and lowly. Let's give up the rage and quit the rebellion. Let's take refuge in Jesus, and let's rest with him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you thanks. That in your mercy and your goodness, you are the king over all things. That you, Lord, leave nothing outside of your control, but that your goodness extends to the most minute moments of our lives, the smallest things that even we forget to think about. But it also extends to the highest heavens. And that being king, Lord, you are good and faithful. So we trust you, Lord, and we ask that you would plant this deeply in our hearts, this trust in you, and that we would take refuge in you. In Jesus' name, amen.